I had the privilege recently, along with my wife, to travel with a group of Northridge family members to Israel. And when we go to Israel, we don't just take the charter bus cruise and, you know, sit up on top of the mountains and say somewhere, you know, a couple miles that way, stuff happened. We, we really get down and dirty and we take all the hikes. And it's one of my favorite parts of going. And one of my favorite hikes one of the most difficult hikes was this one in a place called Qumran, where I'm sure you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's where they were found. And this was such a, a difficult hike that we encouraged most of the team, after talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls and what they mean, we encouraged most of them not to take this hike. And the, only the most adventurous and the most fit, let's take this hike together. Uh, but because it was such a, an arduous hike, we knew that not everyone would make it up, not in this heat. And the interesting part of this trail is that it's, it's basically unmarked. Not many people take it. Now, from this picture, from this angle, you can see a little bit of a trail, but, but that's at the beginning stages. When you start getting up to the more difficult regions because of the rock and how few people have gone, it's almost unmarked. You have to have been there a couple of times to understand the subtle markers, to stay on the right path. And I think you can see from that picture that, that if you get lost in that environment, not going to go well for you. And so as we were taking the hike, this was our rule. If you kind of wear out, you're not going to be able to make it on this hike. You need to sit down right there beside that trail and not move because people who have thought, oh, I can find my way back home, have gotten lost before. Helicopters have had to go for them. This is not a, a good deal. So sit down, stay there. Because if you don't know the trail, if you don't know the markers, if you've not been before, you're going to get lost. And that can be a destructive, destructive thing. And the truth of this trail is, I had never been, none of us have ever been, except for the guide. We were dependent on the guide. He knew the markers. Now, if I was to go back, having been on this, I... I think I could recognize the subtle markers. I could take people with me. I could go. This, for me, is an illustration of the spiritual journey. This journey that we take to know God, to grow in God, to experience life as he designed it. Because you need to know in the spiritual journey, there is a right path. There's a path to take where we're really going to experience him. We're going to know him. We're going to grow in him. But because there's a right path, that means there's a lot of wrong turns that we can make. We can, we can get off the trail. And when we get off the trail, we can crash and burn. And I'm going to tell you, I crashed and burned a lot in my spiritual journey. I, I didn't know the markers of the trail. I didn't know the right ways to take. And so even though I thought I was doing the right thing, I was going in all the wrong places early on. And because of that, I... I finally, after many years of journeying, have recognized that there are markers for the right path. Markers that can keep us from crashing and burning, from getting lost and making horrible choices. And just like the guide in Israel with that trail in Qumran was able to take us and show us the markers, and now I could go back and do it, I believe God's called me to help show you the markers for this path. And so in this series, Unforgettable, where we're talking about unforgettable truths that have impacted our lives and can impact yours, uh, I'm starting the first three weekends with markers to keep us on the right path, to keep us growing and going forward instead of getting off track and crashing and burning. And last week we looked at the heart. 
And this week we're going to look at the second marker, unforgettable truth that I've learned, and it deals with trust. And here's the unforgettable truth. What I trust determines how I live. This is an unforgettable truth when I finally figured it out, when, when I had other people on the spiritual journey help elucidate this truth for me. It transformed me because I never realized that I could so clearly see on the outside of my life what I was trusting on the inside of my life. But I can. What I trust, what I really and genuinely trust, not what I say I trust, not the things I sing about trusting, what I really trust really does determine how I live. And so think about what that means. That means if I just take the time and if I'm willing to take an honest look at my life, I'm going to be able to see whether or not my life is being lived in a way that reflects what I claim to be trusting. As Christ followers, we say we're trusting Jesus, we're trusting his word, that we're following him. But if we're really trusting Jesus, that's going to determine how we live. And often in my life, I've said I was trusting Jesus. I talked about trusting Jesus. I made the declaration of being one who trusted Jesus. But my life wasn't being lived as one who trusted Jesus. The Bible talks a lot about hypocrites. And these are people who say one thing but do another. And the truth is, I've been there. And the truth is, you've been there. We need to be able to recognize what it looks like in our lives when we're trusting Jesus so that as we start veering off the path, we can make a course correction before it's too late. Because what we trust determines how we live. Look at how the Bible says it. Psalm chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. This is David who ultimately became the king. He said, some trust in chariots and some in horses. Some trust in the obvious sources of power that our our world has and our world sees. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord of our God. We don't trust in what looks powerful, what we can see as powerful. We trust in the true power, the invisible power, the one who created all power. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And then he, in verse eight, he talks about how it determines how we live. The ones who trust in chariots and in horses, the one who trust what they can see and what they can feel and what they control, they're ultimately brought to their knees and fall. They're trusting in the wrong thing. But we who trust in the name of the Lord will rise up and will stand firm. He's simply saying what I trust determines how I live. Look at Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Once again, this proverb tells us the two different ways we can live. We can trust in the Lord, what, the, the one we can't see, but the one who is responsible for all that we do see, or we can trust in what we see. We can trust in the one who's so big and so vast that we don't understand him, or we can trust in what we, with our little pea-sized brains and limited experiences, can understand. And most people trust in the horses and chariots. They trust in what they can understand. Trained horses, trained chariots, technology, power, they're going to win. That's how most people trust. It's what they can understand. But it always leads to falling and being broken, to being lost. Trusting in the Lord, even though it doesn't make sense to our visible, visible experiences, will ultimately lead to victory. Then it says, in all your ways, acknowledge him 
Trust him instead of what you understand, and he'll make your path straight. That doesn't mean all your paths will be easy, there will be no difficult living. It means your journey will always be the one he designed for you, and your journey will always end where it's supposed to end. Your journey will be one with no regret. Difficult maybe, but no regret. The one who trusts in horses and chariots, it seems to be logical and makes sense, will ultimately end in regret. The one who trusts the Lord and doesn't lean on their own understanding will have a journey of no regret. And we can see it. All we have to do is look into our life and we can go, okay, if what I trust determines how I live, then is how I'm living indicating that I'm really trusting God and it keeps me on the right path. It's a big deal. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just simply going to share biblical stories that have helped me to see clearly whether I'm on the right path or the wrong path. And know this, I'm basically always saying I'm on the right path. This is what Christ followers do. I'm following Jesus. Following Jesus. It doesn't mean it's true. And I don't want to say I'm following Jesus, but then experience nothing that Jesus offers me. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I want to experience the full impact of his life. He came to give me life and fullness. Why would I want to get off that path? I wouldn't, and nor would you. But we have to recognize the markers, or we can think we're on it, and we'll be off it. So, what I trust determines how I live. These are some of the markers I found. What I trust determines whether I'm living for what is seen or unseen. I can tell by looking at my life if I'm living for what is seen, horses and chariots, or for what is unseen, God. And I can see it by the way I live. You can as well. In fact, let me give you context. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to it, turn to 2 Kings. It's an Old Testament book, chapter 6. We'll get to it in a second. The context is this. Israel had a lot of enemies. One of the enemies was a guy named the king of Aram, right? And the king of Aram was at war with Israel. And you know, any warrior knows that the best way to conquer uh, another army is to surprise them, right? That's this whole surprise attack thing. And so he would go into his private military planning strategy room with his, his highest officials, and he would plan surprise attacks. We're going to attack Israel here. They'll never know it. We're going to take them down. And it was weird, because every time they came up with a secret strategy for a surprise attack. Israel's full army was there, ready to defend. And the king of Aram couldn't make any headway at all. It was crazy. It was like there was an informant, and he got all mad about that. And here's what was going on. Context. Elisha was a prophet of God, one of many. And God was telling Elisha what the king of Aram was planning in secret. And then Elisha would go and tell the king of Israel, <laughs> God just told me that, you know, the king of Aram's going to come over here. Why don't you just take the army over there and you'll slaughter him. It'll all be good. And he kept doing it. And this was, this was POing the king of Aram, right? And he finally found out there's this guy, this is one guy who's hearing the voice of God, who knows what's going on. If they get rid of Elisha, everything will be good. That's the context. You got it? Second Kings chapter six, verse 13. This is what the king of Aram says. Go find out where he is so I can send men and capture him. Get rid of him. I get rid of Israel. The report came back. He's in Dothan. So he sent his horses and chariots. You recognize those two things? Some trust in what? Would you please go to the common ground shop, get some coffee, and then come back when you're ready to participate? Really, seriously. Some trust in horses and chariots. This guy sent horses and chariots, a strong force, to get one guy. 
And surely this vast army of horses and chariots is going to be able to take out this this guy named Elisha, you know, this prophet. He just wore a tunic, probably didn't even have any underwear on. Surely this army can get him, right? So they went by night and surrounded the city when the servant of the man of God got up, went out early the next morning. An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. So Elisha had a servant, right? And he, was, he, was, he went out and he goes, oh my gosh. In fact, he said, oh my Lord, what shall we do? And this is what Elisha said. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, oh Lord, open his eyes so he may see what I'm seeing. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now we have two different reactions here. We have the reaction of the servant who's coming out of the... We are dead meat, it's done. Life is over. Discouraged, despondent, given up. What should we do? How should we surrender? How do we save our lives? What about our children? All that different stuff. Elisha comes out and says, this is going to be awesome. The difference in reaction was because One was trusting in God. The other was trusting in what he could see. One was trusting in the unseen. One was trusting in the seen. And then, of course, God in this particular text opens the servant's eyes so he can see what's really going on spiritually. Here's the question I ask myself. If I really want to be on the right path, if I really want to be experiencing God, if I really want to become all that God wants me to become, I have to ask myself, am I more like Elisha? Or his servant. Now if I don't ask myself this question. Here's what happens to me. I keep wandering through the wilderness. Of Qumran. Thinking I'm on the right path. Thinking I'm going to arrive at the right destination. And instead I'm lost. And the helicopters are sent to find me. And this is where many of us are spiritually. Because we're not asking the question. I say I trust in him. I say I believe in him. But how am I actually living? Like the servant Or like Elisha? Am I living more for the seen, the horses and the chariots? That's what scares the fire out of me. Or am I living more for the unseen, God and his promises? And if you think about this, I know you can relate to this. I know you're in the same circumstance. I know you need to ask the same question because it's so easy to declare a trust in the invisible God. It's a whole other thing to trust that invisible God and his promises. So ask yourself the question, is this what I'm like? Laura, what's wrong? I don't know what to do. My life's a mess. Don't you trust me? I guess I want to trust you. I don't know if I do. I have an exercise I think will really help you. Okay. Face this direction. When I ask if you trust me, say yes, Jesus. I trust you. Even though I don't? It's practice. Okay. Do you trust me? Yes, Jesus, I trust you. Now, fall back. Are you going to catch me? Don't worry about that part. Okay, but that's the part I'm worried about. You can do this. Just trust me and fall back. Okay. Okay, great. I did it. Uh, No. Let's try this again. Stand here. Feet planted. Do you trust me? Yes, Jesus, I trust you. Now, fall back.
actually caught me. That was great. <laughs> that was so great. Now you're ready for level two. Okay, bring it on. This one's a little different. Stand okay. here facing me. All right, forward fall, perfect. Oh, hold on. You have to wait for my signal. Right, sorry. Laura, do you trust me? Yes, Jesus, I really trust you this time. Now fall back. Okay, you almost had me there for a second. <laughs> what do you really want me to do? I want you to fall back. But there's no one there. I know it looks that way. Looks that way? It is that way. You can do this. I can't. You can. Jesus, I can't. I'm right here. I won't. Well, that puts it in perspective. It's easy to sing about it, isn't it? And even as difficult as it is to trust him when we're seeing him work, it becomes extremely difficult when he says, fall back and we don't see anything there. And this is why I talk about being on the right path, but more often than not, I'm on the wrong path because how I'm living is I'm trusting the visible, the seen. I'm not trusting the invisible, the unseen. I'm trusting what God has made instead of the promises God has given. And I would bet there are a lot of times that you're doing the same thing. Thinking you're on the right path, but you're on the wrong path because you're trusting the wrong things. Look, if you would, at 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. This is the Apostle Paul. A lot of stuff was going on in his life that was messing with him. And he says, but we don't lose heart, but we don't get discouraged. We don't give up. Though outwardly, we're getting killed, man. We're wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs everything else. So here's what we do. We fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. He was trusting the unseen reality of God, and so he was living in a very different way from most people. I want to be like him. How about you? If you're on the right path, then you're trusting God. And that means you're living for the unseen. Too many of us are living for the seen. I'm glad to get all excited when you've given me the bank account I want, when you're giving me the job I want, when you're giving me the relationships you want, when you're giving me the sunshine I want, when you're giving me the comfort I want, when you're giving me the joy I want. I'm, woo, I'll trust you more this time, God. But then he asks us to just trust his promises when we don't see anything and we find out we've wandered far off the path. Are you on the path or off the path? There's another marker related to trust. I find that what I trust determines whether I'm living for what is or what can be. And there's a big difference here. If I'm living for what is, I have to settle for the life I've been given. I have to settle for the context I've been given. I have to settle for what is. But if I'm living for what can be, even in the midst of darkness, I can know the light is shining. Even in the midst of despair, I can know there's joy because I'm living for not what is, but what can be. I know that even if I'm facing walls on every side, I can make a difference because I'm not living for what is. I'm living for what can be. That's what happens when we're on the right path. Most of us sing about being on the right path, but we're not on it because we're settling for what is instead of trying to make a difference in this world. Exodus chapter 14 is a story many of us 
have heard of. It's where God delivers his people from bondage in Egypt. They've been in Egypt 400 years and they become slaves. It's a really tough life. They're begging God to get them out of there. God sends Moses. It's an amazing deal. And finally, God breaks the back of Pharaoh, the superpower leader of the day, and he releases Israel to go and worship God. Look at it in Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. After they've been freed from Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Paheruth between Migdol and the sea. They're to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zavon. Two things are going on here. They turn back, first of all. They're not walking in a straight line. Pharaoh would have said, Wait a minute, they're confused. They don't know where they're going. They're hesitating here. Maybe they're not following Moses, that he sees weakness. And they're going into a place where geographically it would be hard for them to escape. Red Sea on one side, two sides makes it not easy for them to move forward. And so Pharaoh saw his opportunity. I can attack them. And that's exactly what happened. Now, God led them here. This is what is. They are to encamp by the sea, it goes on, directly opposite Baal The Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots, some trust in... Yeah, see, you're sad. All right. I really thought you'd do better than that, but that's okay. Some trust in horses and chariots. You don't even trust in that, obviously. You're not even making that declaration. But he sent horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, and he pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped right where God had led them. Now, God led them here. So if they're really trusting God, they're going to say, what's he going to do this time? This is so awesome because what we're seeing isn't what's happening. This is what is, but what can be? But they didn't react that way. Look at how they reacted. By the way, can you tell I've had my coffee this morning? I really have. It's again exciting. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified. Wait a minute, they should be excited, right? They weren't. They were terrified. And they cried out to the Lord. And this wasn't a good cry, as you're going to see in a minute. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? No, it was because you prayed for God to deliver you from Egypt that we we were here. They forgot about that. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us in the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt... Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. What are they living for? They're living for what is. They see nothing beyond what they're experiencing in that moment. They see nothing beyond their present context. So they're screaming at God and they're screaming at Moses and they're bitter and they're upset and they're all discouraged and filled with despair. But they're singing the right songs. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They're, they're singing the right songs. Some trust in horses and chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The only problem is they're singing the right words, but they're walking the wrong path. I find this with me a lot. I say the right words. I read the right book. I go to the right places. I look like I'm doing right, but I am so far off the path, it's dangerous. And I would bet you can relate to that. What is becomes so dominant in your life. I don't have a job or my relationships are falling apart or my kids are really messed up or I can't believe the government's doing this or I can't believe this is going on in the world. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And and what is defines our entire perspective on life while we sing we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I've learned that what I trust is how I live. And if how I'm living doesn't reflect trust in God, then I'm on the wrong path. But look at how Moses reacted here. 
Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you're going to see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Moses isn't living for what is. Moses is living for what can be. I mean, they're both singing the same songs, but Moses is really living it. They're both claiming to be on the right path, but Moses is really on the right path. When everything fell apart around him, when the whole world was shaking apart, because Moses was really trusting in God, he went, this is going to be the greatest day. I can't believe it. What's God going to do this time? I don't know about you. That's not my normal reaction when everything's going south. Is it yours? And I want to give arm gestures and hand gestures and whine and complain. But not Moses. And here's what I've realized. If I want to be on the right path, then my life has to display the trust that I declare. How about you? So I ask this question. Who do I look most like? Moses or Israel? Let me ask you this question. Who do you look most like? Moses or Israel. You see, I'm trying to walk you up the trail here, trying to show you the markers. And I bet you, you're wandering off the path just a little bit. I know I do. But there's another thing you need to see. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we're going to reap a harvest if we do not give up. You know, what our tendency is, if we're living like Israel here, is that we give up. We're living for what is. And so we, it's like, you know, I've been faithful. I've been going to church. I've, been, I've even been reading the Bible once. I go listen to that Brad guy and my life's still falling apart. So I'm going to quit on that stuff. I prayed, but he didn't answer, so I'm not going to pray. I read the Bible and it didn't work, so I'm going to quit reading the Bible. I went to church for a little while and guess what? My life's falling apart around me. Forget it. What are we living for? What is? But he says, hey, don't get weary and quit doing the right thing because at the proper time, God's timing is perfect. You're going to reap a harvest from God. His promises are true, but you just can't give up. When living for what is, we give up. When living for what can be, we keep going. Let me ask you, which describes your prayer life? Which describes your generosity? Which describes your relationship with God? It tells you whether you're on the right path. Another marker. When I trust determines how I live. So that means what I trust determines whether I'm living fearfully or courageously. Fearfully or courageously. By fearfully, I mean, you know, am I kind of wading through life insecurely, not really believing that anything good's going to come of it? Or am I walking courageously, filled with confidence that God's promises are true? This helps me to know whether I'm on the right path or the wrong path. Let me just read another story from the Bible. And I hope you get this. I'm not like taking the Bible and interpreting it down and sharing the Hebrew and looking underneath it and doing all this different stuff to make this say that all I'm doing are I'm reading stories from the Bible. And these truths jump out. You don't have to have a seminary degree and you don't have to have someone telling you all the nuances of the languages the Bible was written in. If you would just read the book, these principles will jump out for you. Look at this story. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Okay. 
a trained warrior who was over nine feet tall. You can read the context of this thing. He carried a spear that was like about as heavy as the moon. Okay, I made that up. But I mean, it was I, this guy, he was a mighty warrior. And so big was this guy and some of his compatriots and then his army behind him that King Saul and all the Israelites, those in the army of Israel, were dismayed and terrified. I mean, this was not a good day. I mean, things were not good. They were, they were afraid. Why? Because they were small in comparison to Goliath. They were weak in comparison to Goliath. And so they were fearful. And can I just say, isn't that the natural reaction? Come up to some giant of a problem that can squish you like a bug? The normal reaction is, my gosh, I should be afraid. I should be a little insecure. But that's not what happened to David. Now, you can read the whole thing on your own, but David was just a shepherd boy. Not a warrior, not a trained army guy, had no armor that could fit him, had no spears, had no anything. He had a stone and a little kind of handmade slingshot. He didn't even have a dollar store to go get a real slingshot from. I mean, this guy had nothing. And all he had to do was protect the sheep from wolves and bears and lions, and he did it with this little slingshot and stone. He came... And King Saul and the army of Israel was afraid of Goliath. And David said, I'm not afraid of Goliath. Why? Because, see, he trusted, he's the one that wrote it, not in horses and chariots, but he trusted the name of the Lord our God. Saul said, they've got bigger soldiers, they've got bigger spears, they've got bigger chariots, they've got better horses. We're, we're mincemeat. Saul and the army of Israel saw Goliath and lived in fear. David saw Goliath and had no fear at all, basically. Why? Because he saw Goliath in light of God. So he saw Goliath and he goes, oh my gosh, he is so small compared to God. Saul saw Goliath and said, he is so big in comparison to me. But Paul claimed to be trusting God as David did, which one was on the right path. Look at what David did. David said, I'm going to fight this guy. So David went out and the Goliath started making fun of him. And David said to the Philistine, imagine this, no armor, no spear, no anything, a couple of rocks and a piece of leather. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. And that's what some trust in. I get it. But I come against you in the name of the Lord almighty. That's who I trust in. He's the God of the armies of Israel and you have defied him. This day, the Lord's going to hand you over to me, not because I've got better equipment than you, but because my God is bigger than you. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he'll give all of you into our hands. And so the Philistine moved closer to attack him. Now, it's one thing to talk big. I'm pretty good at talking big. I'm going to take you down, but I'm always out of distance, right? The dude starts running after me. I'm going to start saying, I'm taking you down. I'm out of there, okay? Or at best, I'm like doing the Muhammad Ali thing, you know? Look what David does, seriously. As the Philistine moved closer to kill him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. What is his problem? His problem is that he knows God is bigger than Goliath. How he's living is a declaration of who he's trusting. How Saul was living was a declaration of who he was trusting. Both said they were trusting God. Which one was? David. 
Which one represents you? Which one represents me? David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. Can I just make a comment here? I read the Bible and I look for interesting aspects. If I'm going to go fight Goliath and all I have is a couple of stones and a piece of leather, the stone's not going to be in my pocket. It's going to be cocked and loaded. He's running to Goliath and said, oh yeah, I forgot my stone. (laughs) Are you kidding me? He knew it wasn't the stone. It was always God. If all God gives you to fight with is a stone, know this, God wins. If God gives you nothing to fight with, God wins. But most of us don't live like winners. Most of us live like losers because we haven't been given what we think it takes to win this battle. We haven't been given what we think it takes to live life. We talk about trusting God, but we really don't. He did. He took that stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and fell. the guy fell face down on the ground. Boom. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. By the way, when I read the Bible, I sound effects are a big part of my reading. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David said, some trust in horses and chariots, but I trust in the name of the Lord. He knew he could take down a giant without a sword. I have to ask myself, am I more like Saul or David? Let me ask you, who are you more like? I could live for God if he gave me better equipment. I could live for God if he provided for me in a different way. I could live for God if I had all the latest technology and all the latest abilities and had all the bank accounts that other people have. I could live for God if he did that, but I can't. And I'm insecure and I'm fearful because I don't have it. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. That's a word for fear and insecurity. God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. He didn't give us fear. He gave us courage. He didn't give us insecurity. He gave us confidence. Who are you most like? Are you on the right path or the wrong path? Are you really trusting God and is it shown in how you live or not? And by the way, if God doesn't give us fear, where does fear come from? Are you on the right path, really? You can't be on the right path and be consumed with fear. You can feel fear, but not consumed by it. There's another marker. What I trust determines whether I'm living with or without my limitations. In other words, all of us have very limited capacities. I know what I know, but I don't know most things, right? I have some strength, but I don't have enough strength for most things. And I have some capacity for love, but I really don't have the capacity on my own to love like marriage needs and parenting needs and and being like Jesus needs. And so I have limitations in my capacities. And the question is, am I living within the limits of my own capacity or am I living outside of my limitations? Well, it... It's determined by what I trust. Look at the Bible. I'll just show you an example of this again. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the 12 together, his original followers, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons, and the rest of that passage says, and all diseases. So he had the power, and he gave it to them, and he had the authority, and he gave it to them to drive out all demons and all diseases. So let's read about then the event that happens right after he gave them this power and this authority. Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 and on. 
When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. And I I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. They could not deliver him. Let me ask you a question again. Did Jesus give them power and authority over some demons and some diseases or all, did the Bible say? All. So I brought my son to your disciples and they couldn't heal him. It's weird, isn't it? It goes on. Jesus rebuked the demon because he had the power and authority over all demons and diseases. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and said, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we drive it out? And this is what he replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can see, say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. We are limited in our capacities. We don't have the ability to move mountains, correct? He said that if we simply have faith as big as a mustard seed, a really teeny seed, not the greatest of all seeds in the world, we could move mountains. We can live outside of our limitations. If we really trust him, nothing will be impossible for us. In this passage, Jesus makes it clear that living above our personal limitations, moving mountains, isn't an issue of the quality of our faith. He didn't say, if you've got the greatest faith in the history of the world, you can move mountains. He said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move the the mountain. In fact, then he said this. He says, it's not an issue of the quantity of our faith. You don't need a bunch of these seeds. You just need enough faith to make up one of those seeds, and you can move mountains. It's an issue of the object of our faith, not the quantity or quality of our faith. Who's my faith in? It determines whether or not I'm living in my own limitations or living in the unbelievable power and possibility of God. Let me ask you a question. Is your life defined by your own limitations, the limitations of your experiences, the limitation of your education, the limitation of your opportunities, the limitation of your context, the limitations of the economy, limitations of what you've known? who you are, who your parents are, or is the way you're living limited by nothing but God himself? It's all determined by who you really trust. This is a big deal. Who gave them authority over the demons and the diseases? Jesus. Why couldn't they deliver the boy? Because they didn't trust Jesus himself. And in spite of what they said, in spite of how they sang, they didn't do it. And the same is true with me. Jesus says when we put our faith in him, our trust, no matter how small, no matter how weak, can move mountains. We can walk on water. We can live way beyond our own limitations when our trust is in him. I I want you to know something. I don't have very many moments in my life where my faith is not accompanied by doubt. Because I can't see a bunch of stuff that's going on in this world. I've never been able to see the chariots of fire and the horses of fire around all my... I've never been able to see it. But I have seen God do amazing things in my life when I have trusted him. And so I have to get to the place where I realize that though I'm not seeing it, I've got to take my limited amount of faith 
and I've got to place it in the right object in Jesus. And I can't let the doubts that I have keep me from trusting him. God didn't say you had to have faith with no doubt. He simply said you have to have the faith of a mustard seed in him. And so I try not to let my doubts detour and override my faith in him. And when I have faith as a mustard seed in him, amazing things can happen. And the same is true with you. Let me ask you, are you on the right path or the wrong path? It's easy to have faith when you see him. I mean, I love that video we did, didn't you? I love that video. It's like, okay, you know, okay, that's cool. Fall backwards. No. And that's really the life that we're called to live. Jesus makes it clear that we can live above our personal limitations if we trust. The question is, am I? The question is, are you? Another marker. What I trust determines whether I'm living for what is temporary or eternal. What I trust determines whether I'm going to live for what's temporary, what passes away, or that which is eternal and lasts forever. Let me just give you two examples. Demas and Paul in the Bible. 2 Timothy 4.10. A guy named Demas followed the Lord for a while, and then he rejected him. Look at what it says. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. Jesus talked about trusting God and tr- trusting the unseen, but he really lived for the scene and fell in love with the things of this world, the things that disappear, and he deserted Jesus as a result. And I'm going to tell you, the same thing happens more often than not in our lives. But look at Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Unlike Demas, for to me, to live is Christ. Not this world and what this world gives. For me to live is Christ. And so to die is, what does he say? Gain. When I die, I don't lose nothing. I gain everything. Because I'm not living for what I see. I'm living for the unseen. I'm not living for the temporary. I'm living for the eternal. Most of us are living for the temporary. We get ticked at God because he's not giving us the prosperity other people have in a financial realm. We get ticked at God because he's not giving us the success that that others have in their vocational life. We get ticked at God because he's not giving us the the abundance of relationships that others have. We get ticked at God because, because our health isn't as good as other people's. And we get ticked about all these things because we're living for those things. Which means we're not on the right path. We're, we've wandered away. We're crashing and burning. Paul got it. I'm going to live for the eternal. The question I have to ask myself is, am I living like Demas or am I living like Paul? This helps me keep on the trail. Am I living like Demas or Paul? What am I really loving? What, are, what am I complaining most about? What am I whining most about? Look at 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. For all men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall. But the promises of God, the word of the Lord, stands forever. In light of that truth, why would I want to live like Demas? Nothing he lived for lasts. God's promises are what last. What are you living for? One last marker. What I trust determines whether I'm living with or without hope. With or without hope. And I'm going to tell you, in my own life, I find hope in very short supply at times. And as a pastor, I I get to know a lot of people. And I'm going to tell you, most people don't have a lot of hope. I mean, they don't have hope for their grandkids because they think the world's going to cave before their grandkids' lives. They don't have much hope for their own lives. And they don't have much hope for this. And they don't have much hope for that. And they don't have much hope that their neighbor will come to faith. And they don't have, I mean, it's just, oh. 
All the while they're singing, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but I trust in the name of the Lord. No, you don't. If you are not consumed with hope, you're not trusting in the God of hope. Peter and the disciples talked about trusting God, but, but when Jesus was arrested and then ultimately crucified, they, they showed what they were really trusting in, what they saw. It was easy to fall forward or backwards when they saw Jesus, but it was really tough when he disappeared. Look at Mark chapter 14, verse 50. Then they all forsook him and they fled. They ran. When they placed Jesus in the grave, it left them without hope because they were living for what was seen, not was unseen. There was nothing for them to do but run away and hide. But here's what we need to know, and here's what they learned. The grave isn't the end of the story. The grave isn't the end. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 19 and 20. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're miserable. We're to be pitied more than all men. But that's not how it is. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's been raised from the dead, and everyone who trusts in him will be raised from the dead as well. How can we live without hope? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In order to keep myself moving forward, I have to ask myself this question. What's the degree of hope I have? What's the degree of hope? Because if my hope is small, my faith is not where it's supposed to be. If my hope is big, my faith is where it's supposed to be. How about you? I want you to remember that when we genuinely trust God, even when our whole world starts shaking apart, even when it seems like God is dead, the truth is God is not dead. God stands. God's promises are true. God is present and God is with us and he will fulfill everything he promised in our lives. We just have to keep trusting. I want you to contemplate that. I want you to let that sink in. Am I living with hope or without a hope as my world shakes apart as we listen to this song? The unforgettable truth that has truly reshaped my life is that what I trust determines how I live even when my world is shaking apart. So I have to ask myself the question, what am I really trusting? How am I really living? Let me ask you, what are you really trusting? How are you really living? I believe there needs to be a lot of realignment in our lives as believers. We need to kind of get back on the path, start following the guide. But there are some of us here who we've just never yet started trusting him. It's time to get on the right path. So just before I close this talk, would you bow with me in a word of prayer and if you're believers, I want to encourage you to spend some time talking to God about how your life matches your declaration of trust. But if you're here and you've never taken the step of trust, I want to invite you to pray with me. Take my words and make them your expression to God. In your heart, just say, God, 
in this moment, I want to stop trusting what I see and I want to start trusting you. By trusting what I see, I've really got, gotten in a mess in my life. I've sinned against you. I haven't experienced you. But I'm putting my trust in the fact that Jesus died so my sin could be forgiven and rose again so that I could have new life. And I'm asking you to forgive my sin and give me that life as I trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed with me, I just really want to encourage you. And I know it's hard to, you know, make yourself known, but I really want to encourage you to let us know. When you're in one of our live campus settings, we give you one of these programs, and on the inside is what we call a connection card. It's just a perforated card you can take out that if you'd fill it out so that we can get the information to you and you check that circle at the bottom that says you prayed with me just now, we'll send you a letter about next steps that you can take in your journey with God. It's just a a real helpful next step kind of guide. There are boxes, easy to see, at every exit. Just throw it in there. If you're watching Church Online, just hit what next and we'll do the same thing for you. Let us help you move forward. But here's the bottom line. It's one thing to say you're on the right path. It's another thing to be on the right path. The right path is trusting him. But when you do, it shows in your life. And when it's not showing, it's time to make an adjustment. Because the one place we don't want to be is in life without him. And we never have to be there when we trust him. I hope you will. We'll see you next time.